Whew, did you get all that? Okay. Um, first of all, Clinton, I feel like I've got a little bounce on my mic. It might be a little hot. I don't know. But um, if you use the Bible app, check out the event right now for today, for December 3rd. You'll find uh, a couple notes on today's message and the scripture we're going to be looking at today. Uh, and if you brought your Bible or you use your Bible app, I invite you to turn with, you, with me to uh, Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. Uh, if you, it's, you're probably going to find it in the first quarter of your Bible, uh, maybe the first third. And um, Nehemiah is one of those books in the Bible that we really ought to be familiar with. Um, in fact, any of the books that are named after an individual, we really ought to be familiar with what's going on there, and here's why. Because you ought to be familiar with the context, you know, like books like Ezra and Nehemiah and Matthew and James and Isaiah and Malachi and Obadiah. And because here's the deal, when we run, we get to heaven and we run into these people, we don't want to say something stupid. So you should know a little bit about what they had to say. And we don't like, oh yeah, weren't you, oh, Obadiah, is it, or you were one of the disciples? No, oh no, you were, no, oh sorry, we just don't want to be embarrassed. So we should know a little bit about that. Nehemiah is one of those books we definitely should have a little bit of uh, knowledge about. So we're going to look at a passage from Nehemiah today, and really one verse and honestly, one line from a verse. We've been talking about discovering God's will. We said that the great news, if, we, if you don't remember anything else, the great news is that God has a will for our lives. He wants you to know his will for your life even more than you want to know it. You're like, oh, I'm so desperate to know God's will. That's cool, because God is desperate for you to know it. He wants to be involved in the decision-making process in your life, not just on a macro level, you know, what do I want to be when I grow up, but on the micro level about those personal decisions that we're faced with uh, in life. Because you and I know it's not uh, usually the big decisions that get us into trouble. It's the small decisions that not only get us into trouble, but also contribute to and often undermine the direction of our lives, even when we're well-intentioned. Uh, so God wants to be involved in that. Oh, by the way, uh, somewhere in a seat back near you, um, I have some sheets like this. It's just kind of an at-a-glance of the whole series. I didn't do one for every chair, but somewhere in the seat backs around you, there should be enough maybe for everybody, and if not, we'll make more. And if there's not one within arm's reach, you can grab one from some of the empty seats after the service. Just an at-a-glance of where we've been so far in this series. This is part five, and uh, today we're going to be right down at the very bottom there. Uh, if you want to kind of get a sneak peek on where we're going. We started off, off in this series asking, can we even know the will of God? And if so, how? So I went to great lengths on that Sunday to illustrate my view anyway, that God's will works very little like a blueprint and much more like a game plan. And we said that we get a lot more clarity when we approach God's will from like a game plan rather than a blueprint. But, so then we asked, well, how can we do that? And I suggested four things. First of all, obey what we know, get the facts, think biblically, and master the basics. And I think if we can kind of get our heads around those four things, uh, we'll have a better view of what it is, that game plan that God has for us. Then in part two, we said that generally the will of God can be found within three contexts. Remember this? We talked about the providential will of God, things that God is going to do anyway. We talked about the moral will of God, those things that God has instructed all of us to do, that he wants us to do, he expects us to do, and that somewhere in conjunction with the providential will of God and the moral will of God, we will find the personal will of God, his personal direction for our lives. We said that the more familiar we become with the providential will of God, the things God's going to do anyway, and the more obedient we become 
to the moral will of God, those things that God has commanded us to do, then the easier it'll be for you and I to discover the personal will of God. Got that? As we study God's word, the more familiar we become with the providential will of God, the things he's going to do anyway that he might want to involve us in, and the more obedient and surrendered we become to the moral will of God, the things that we already know that he's commanded us to do, that we're supposed to do, the, those standards that God has established for our relationships, for the way we do family, for our interactions with other people, for our private lives, our thoughts, our attitudes, our actions, then the easier it's going to be for us to determine and understand the personal will of God. Then in part three, we said that one of the primary tools that God's going to use is the counsel of other believers. How many of you have ever found that to be true in your life? When you've got to know God's will and you've got to know like now, Okay? You don't have time to really get into the whole providential, moral, where's the personal? And you're like, i got to know now. Like, it's Sunday, Tuesday would be great. I've leaned into this a lot over the years. And we, we talked about how to choose the right people. We talked about the right questions to ask because, you know, some of us in this room, some of you are brand new Christians or maybe you're just resuming your spiritual journey. Maybe you've taken it to another place. At least, you know, you're just um, kind of figuring this stuff out. And you're like, I have to make a decision. And I, kinda, I don't have time right now to learn all about the providential will of God. I mean, to say, yeah, read the Bible, you'll figure it out. That, that's a big task, and I don't have time before I have to make this decision. I need to know now. We said that the fast track, oftentimes, is to ask God to, ask, to use someone in our lives to speak to us. And when we do that, then we need to be ready when God speaks to us through them. Okay. Then last time, a couple weeks ago, we said that God has given us his word. He, he speaks to us through his word, the Bible. And in his word, we're not simply to look for people whose circumstances kind of parallel ours. I know sometimes we tend to look for that. Um, that's not always the best approach. We're not simply to look for promises and make a long list of all the things God's promised that he'll do for us. But we are to look into God's word and ask the question to God, show me truth, show me principles, show me what are those unchanging, timeless truths that you have for my life. I want to I see as you see. Remember we talked about Isaiah 55? To come to God and say, I want to see as you see. I want to think like you think. I want your ways to be my ways. And we talked about this whole idea of discovering principles in God's word. And we said this, that every time we make a decision, our decisions are going to intersect in some way, with the principles of God's Word. And the more familiar we are with the principles of Scripture, the easier it's going to be to determine and discern His will. That's where we've been. This is a huge subject. Um, we could spend weeks and weeks talking about this, and you probably are like, yeah, we already have. But today's the last uh, in this series. Not that we've exhausted the topic, because um, we could talk about lots of other things. We could talk about things like authority. You know, as we, we could talk about how God often directs us through the authorities that He's placed over us like it or not. In fact, uh, you know, for middle schoolers and high school students, this is not good news at all because like your whole life you can't get away from authority. But the fact is God's going to use the authorities in our lives, whether it's our teachers or our parents or our employers or our government or our church leadership. God speaks to us through authority. Uh, there's a whole idea of giftedness that God has given each of us as believers a spiritual gift and he often guides us through the way that he's gifted us. There's the issue of wisdom you know, one of the best questions we could ever ask in terms of determining God's will is what's the wise thing for me to do? God's called us to walk wisely. And, he's, and I, I love Andy Stanley's teaching on this where he says, ask what is the wise, wise thing for me to do in light of my past experience, in light of my present circumstance, in light of my future hopes and dreams, what's the wise thing for me to do? You want to talk about promises of scripture. In James, it says that when you ask God for wisdom, he gives it to you generously. 
And so perhaps we could talk about the prayer for wisdom. There are all kinds of subjects we could talk, tackle this morning as we wrap up this series on discovering God's will. But there's another facet of discovering God's will that is often overlooked. And it's a little bit difficult to explain. It's really intriguing to me. And for, for me, it's very central. <clears throat> and for those of us who've been Christians for many, many years, we would all agree that this is something that God uses over and over and over. So I want to sort of venture out a little bit today and talk about something that on the surface may not seem very appropriate in a discussion about determining God's will, or maybe on the other side of the discussion, you'll see that it's very, very relevant to the subject. So I want to talk for just a few minutes on the subject of vision. Vision. One of the primary ways that God will guide you and direct you in your life is by giving you a big picture vision for your life. You're like, that's great. I'm still waiting for that. I'm 58 years old, still waiting for that vision. A vision is basically just keep your mind open and maybe we'll all kind of land at the same place. A vision is basically a destination. It's where you want to end up in life. And when I talk about vision this morning, I'm not talking about, you know, a particular specific vision. I'm talking about a multifaceted vision that God has for your life. A picture of what could be and what should be. That's how I define vision. What could be and what should be. God has a picture of what he wants to see happen in your marriage. He has a picture of what he wants to see happen in your family. He has a picture of what he wants to see happen for you professionally, in your finances, with your relationships and your friendships, wherever it might be. That somewhere out there, excuse me, is, is an image of what could be and should be for your life. That's what vision is an image of what could be fueled by the conviction that this is something that should be. That's what vision is. And what I want to encourage you to do uh, today is to start thinking in terms of, Lord, what is the big picture for me? What's the big picture for my marriage? God, what do you see down the road in terms of my relationship with my children? Give me a clear vision of what you want to see for me professionally. Give me a vision of where you want me to be financially. Give me a vision of where you want me to be in ministry and serving in the local church. And as you begin to ask these questions and you begin to draw on the resources you already have and the counsel, you know, the counsel of others, the principles of God's word, you begin to bring into focus a picture of what could be and what you believe should be in areas of your life. Here's what happens. As the vision gets clearer, the options get fewer and the decisions get easier. That's just how it works. The options get fewer and the decisions get easier. A vision is sort of like a cover on a puzzle box. As many of you know, my mom is an avid jigsaw puzzle person. Anybody else like jigsaw puzzles? Because we have a support group for that, just saying. Okay. Got a few. Got a few people. For years, I've watched her dump out thousands of puzzle pieces. Because if it doesn't have like 9 million pieces, she's not even going to bother with it. So she dumps out these puzzle pieces... And then I come back a little while later, and she's got the border done. And I just, you know, mostly just keep on walking and usually make a smart comment and keep walking. But it's just too complicated for me. I just, I don't think that way. But even as I walk by and I look at all these pieces, I can at least generally, you know, tell where these pieces need to go because I can see the box cover, which in mom's case is usually on the floor somewhere under the table somewhere because she doesn't need that. She doesn't use that. That's cheating to her. And uh, that's just out of sight. But somewhere over here is the picture of what this puzzle is supposed to look like. And uh, that picture 
is to the puzzle what vision is to my life. A vision is the big picture. It's a destination. It's where things are going to end up. And as you and I develop a clearer picture of, in the different areas of our lives, it makes putting the pieces together much, much easier. So to the novice, at least, if you don't have the box cover for your puzzle, it's pretty much useless for the novice, for the beginner. But if you have the cover with enough time and enough patience, you can put things together. What happens oftentimes in our lives is that we charge out into life without a clear picture of where we want to end up in the critical areas of our lives. And we find ourselves um, having to make decisions with very little context. So what we're going to see today from God's Word and what I've discovered in, is that uh, as the providential will of God and the moral will of God provide some guardrails and the counsel of other believers and the principles of God's Word intersect with our decisions and keep us focused as we begin to develop a clear vision of what God wants to happen in your future, as what could be and what should be comes into focus, it even more tightly defines the parameters of decision-making. And the clearer the vision, the fewer the options, the easier the decision. Maybe you know people or you have uh, family members who are single adults. And they're, they're into the, uh, the dating thing. And you know that down the road they'd like to be married. Maybe you know somebody like that. And they don't, they don't see 15 more years of dating. That's not cool because they'd like to be married someday. And if they were talking to me, here's what I would say. What does that look like? for you? What's the preferred picture? What does marriage look like to you? What does the road to marriage look like to you? Describe for me the marriage relationship in your future. And the answers to those questions determine what could be and what should be in that person's life. He or she needs to move past simply, I want to be married, and begin to think in terms of what does marriage look like? If you know, because if I'm going to be married someday, what could it be and what should it be? Those are the questions that need to be asked. And if we don't move beyond, I want to be married someday, chances are someday th they'll be married, but it won't be what they want. So we need a real clear vision. Here's what happens. As a single, and if you're a single adult, I don't mean to pick on you, but it's a, just an easy example for me. As a single adult begins to define this, as he or she begins to describe, the, the, to describe this to other people and bring it into a clearer and clearer vision, then it automatically eliminates a lot of potential people. By eliminate, I don't mean that in the mob sense of the word. I just mean <laughs> not an option for you, okay? Just need to make that clear. And a lot of uh, potential relationships are no longer potential because that could, is going to lead you in a completely different direction. And you know, as you interact with single adults and when you find, or maybe you're there and you find yourself having this conversation, you know, well, I think he might be the one. Uh, she might be, she, I think she's the one. Before you talk about that, talk about what could be and what should be. Because the clearer the vision is, the easier it is to evaluate the options. And so many times when single adults honestly answer this question, they look at the person they're dating, they realize, not really an option. This person's not the option for me. I think I love him. I think I enjoy being with her. But in terms of what could be and should be for my life, not the option I thought it was going to be. Another scenario, and I'll move on. It's because it's uncomfortable. A uh, man or woman decides to get their lives together financially. They begin, to, I don't know if you've ever been there. You ever like, okay, okay this is it. This is the year. We're going to get this financial thing straightened out. Yes, this is our New Year's resolution. And they begin to look at their income. 
and they look again to make sure they didn't miss something. And they look at their debt structure, and they're like, how could this be? And they look at their spending habits, and they look at what God says about stewardship, and they begin to ask the questions, what could be and what should be for us financially? What could be and should be in terms of how we save, how we spend, how we give? And the clearer their financial vision comes into focus, the fewer options they need to consider. And eventually, they begin changing their spending habits, and now they're able to discern easily what God's will is when it comes time to make a decision about their finances. Why? Because there's a picture. There's a clear picture of a preferred future, and they know what their destination is. Same thing applies with raising our kids. Same thing applies with our marriages. Same thing applies with our career choices. Same thing applies with our educational choices. Same thing applies with our service in the church and in the community. Same thing applies in every area of our lives. The clearer the vision, the fewer the options, the easier the decision. And again, what I've seen in my life over and over is I've asked God, you know, I want to see as you see. Help me. Would you help me see as you see? I want my thoughts to be more like your thoughts. I want a biblical view of marriage. I want a biblical view of family. I want a biblical view of finances. I want a biblical view of priorities. I want a biblical view of ministry. I want to look at the future and have a clear picture that reflects what you see for my life. And I've begun to look at things from that perspective. And when I started to do that, decision-making got so much easier and it's just so much easier to discern God's will. The truth is, everybody in this room has some general idea of where you want to end up in life in a particular area of your life. If I were to say to you, tell me about what you want your marriage to look like in five years, words would come out of your mouth. Because you're not going to say, oh, I had no idea. I never thought about that. You're not going to say that because that's not acceptable. But if I were to say to you, know, tell me about your relationship with your kids five years from now. What do you want that to look like? You'd say, well, you... Something. You'd say something, because you have a general idea. What about financially or professionally, and in your service, in the church, and in the community, in every area of your life, you have some general idea, but the problem is this. As long as it's general, it's not helpful. As long as it's general, it's not helpful in terms of making decisions, because the clearer and more defined the vision is, that's when the options get fewer and the decision-making gets easier. You know, to be single today and to look into the future and say, well, what my vision is, I just, I, my vision is to be married. And I would say, and? Oh, no, that's it. I want to be married. Like, well, that's it? I mean, there's, there's, not, there's not a single adult out there that couldn't just get married if that's the vision. Surely you want to define your vision, your vision further than that. Maybe you want to clarify this a little bit. Or this one, someday I want to have children. That's it? Oh, yeah, that's it. I just want to have, ch- I want to have children. What's stopping you? I mean, you can have children. If that's, if that's your vision, that's all there is to it, but perhaps you ought to refine that a little. Or in the area of your career or in your finances or whatever, as you define your vision, as you pray this prayer, Lord, help me to see a preferred future the way that you see it for my life, then you'll begin to understand God's will and God's vision for your life. And the clearer the vision, the fewer the options, the easier the decisions. Some of you have discovered this accidentally in your jobs. You've had a pretty clearly defined vision for your professional life. And when it comes to your career goals and decisions, you've got a pretty good idea. Because you've been, you've been presented with options, you've been presented with opportunities for advancement or, or, or a lateral move or whatever, and you're, you're, you've had to think about these. And if I were to say to you, tell me about your professional life 
five years from now, some of you would give me a pretty clear detailed account because your detailed account is retired, sitting in my recliner. <laughs> if that's your vision, if you're that close to retirement and that's your vision for your life, I just want to challenge you to refine that a little bit. Because if you think somehow at that point, then you know, God's vision for my life is complete. He's done with me. I'll just sit here and vegetate. Um, ask God for a little clearer vision. Some of you can give me a pretty clear, pretty clear detailed account where you want to be in your career. And you are working it. You're doing all the things you got to do. You're, you're positioning yourself for advancement. That's cool. But on the other side of it, maybe we talk about your personal life. There's no plan in place. There's no picture. You know, you, can give me, you could give me paragraphs of where you see yourself in your career in five years, or let's say 10 years if you want to dare. But when it comes to personal, like, well, I'm married, and, you know, I have kids, and since I'm married, boy, I hope it's a good one. I hope we get to those big anniversaries, you know, go on a cruise or something. Since I have kids, I hope they turn out okay. hope they're safe. That's pretty much it. So in other words, you look into your future and you're married and you have kids. But when it comes to your professional life, you've got this detailed plan. You know, it's, it's a master plan, you've got it all, and you're working it, and you're making headway, and you're making progress in your career. But meanwhile, maybe there are all sorts of problems at home, your marriage isn't really that strong. Your kids are kind of disconnected and, sh- and drifting. And, and part of the reason is you, you've never sat down on purpose and asked, what do I want this area of my life to look like in five years' time? Where do I want my relationship with my kids, my grown children to be? What do I want that to look like when they're adults? What do I want that to be when they're adults, and how are we going to relate to each other as adults? Because it's only in the areas of our lives we have, where we have some semblance of a, of a clear picture that the options prioritize themselves and the decision-making gets easier. And as a Christian, as we allow the Holy Spirit to have some input into this picture, it makes discerning His will so much easier, much less a mystery. The thing that's incredible about this is that you don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't have to have been a Christian for a very long time to know what God has to say about some key areas of your life. It's the kind of thing that we talk about all the time at Faith Community. We talk about it here on Sundays. We talk about, um, we talk about it in our youth group and in our small group environments and women's ministry and men's ministry. We talk about things like family and marriage and money and ministry and my job and my reputation and my character and all those kinds of things. And as you begin to kind of take the raw data and you plug it into your picture of a preferred future, you, you plug it into the picture of where you want to be someday, you'll be amazed at how easy it becomes to prioritize your options and to discern what it is that God would have you to do. Maybe you can identify with what I'm talking about because you set this process in motion years ago and you're reaping the benefits of that. But maybe you've never really thought of it in terms of vision. Because you're the type of person you sat down and you thought about what you want in your relationships. You thought about what you want in your family. You thought about what you want in your job and in your church, and you talked about it with the people who are in your inner circle. Maybe you even wrote it down in a journal or something, because some of you do that. And you know that time after time when it has come to making decisions, you've referred back to the, that picture of what you want for your future and what you believe God, the picture of you believe God has given you for your future in this area of your life and that area of your life and this other area of your life, and it's become clear to you what you need to do. And I know some of you well enough to know that I could ask you Tell the story, because I've heard your story, and I know that this is exactly how you've operated. And you know that from experience, that when the vision is clear, the options get prioritized, and decision-making gets easier. 
Several times in the last 20 years or so, I've preached and taught and led small group discussions from the book of Nehemiah. Um, I've looked at the book of Nehemiah, different passages from Nehemiah's life from different angles. Today, I want to look at a phrase from one verse. Um, but today, uh, before we do that, um, yeah, let's go there. Nehemiah chapter 6. Chapter 6 in Nehemiah, because I'm hoping by now you found Nehemiah. I would say this one phrase from this verse has helped me more in the last 14 years than anything else when it comes to making decisions and managing my time and keeping my priorities in order. And I say 14 years because I remember. I remember the context of the conversations that I had with Alethea and where we said, this is, this is how we need to operate. And uh, it's really become a standard for decision-making for us and for me. And it has to do with God's vision for my life in decision-making. I'm hoping that we're all in Nehemiah chapter 6. I want to read a few verses. But before I do, I want to give you a little context. Nehemiah, um, he was a, a cupbearer to a king whose uh, predecessors had destroyed Israel. Okay? God judged Israel. Uh, you disobeyed me. Judgment's coming. Judgment came. Sent them off into captivity. Scattered them all over the world. And then God says, after 70 years, he says, I'm going to, bit by bit, I'm going to bring you back to the land. And so after 70 years, some of the Jews began to make their way back to what was left of Israel, and more specifically Jerusalem, and and a group came, and they rebuilt the temple, and a group came and reestablished the economy there. But meanwhile, Nehemiah, who was a Jew, remained a prisoner, a slave of the king whose predecessors had done all of this damage in Israel. And he was about 800 miles away, and he hears that the walls around Jerusalem are broken down. Got the picture? And he gets a burden. Now, just so we're clear on this, visions begin as a burden. That's where vision comes from. It begins as a burden. It begins as a concern. Something needs to be done here. We need to pay attention to this. Maybe something needs to change. This thing is important enough that we ought to do something. So he began to develop this vision for the walls being built around Jerusalem. The problem is he's 800 miles away. He worked for the guys whose forefathers had destroyed those walls in the first place and made sure that Israel wasn't going to be uh, any kind of military threat. And he had no interest. This guy had no interest in these walls being rebuilt. The king didn't. The book of Nehemiah is an incredible study of leadership, um, an incredible study of vision. You really need to take the time to read the story for yourself. I encourage you to read the book of Nehemiah and then read Andy Stanley's book called Visioneering, which is really all about the leadership of Nehemiah. Nehemiah gets the opportunity to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild these walls. This is all happening about 444 BC, okay? So he gets there. He, I'm skipping over a lot of really good details, but he gets there. He assembles the people. There are all kinds of problems. There's dissension within. There are, all, there are threats from outside. It's not really working. But for about two months, he works diligently to rebuild these walls. And while he's doing this, there are other leaders in the same area of the world who are threatened now by the fact that these walls are being rebuilt and before their very eyes. They're coming back. Because they've established themselves as a military force and as a political force in this region, the last thing they want to see happen is for Jerusalem and for Israel to once again become a force to be reckoned with in that part of the world. So they threaten physical assault. They come up with a plan. They're going to they're gonna, they're take Nehemiah out. And uh, in the meantime, they're trying to ruin his reputation. And consequently, trying to distract him from the work on the wall. And finally, they come to the conclusion that there's no way to stop the wall. 
So in Nehemiah chapter 6, we take a look at their last-ditch effort to stop the work on the wall. So Nehemiah chapter 6, took us a while to get there, verse 1. When it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, uh, to Geshem, the Arab, and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, this is Nehemiah speaking, and that no breach remained in it, although at time I had not set up the doors and the gates. <laughs> then Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Kepharim in the plain of Ono. So here's what happens. They realize we can't stop the wall. It's going up in like record time. In like 52 days, they rebuilt this wall. We can't stop this. So they threaten, we, you know, we've threatened military action. We've told them that. We've sent the message that we're going we're gonna to act here. Uh, we've done everything we can. It looks like they're going to finish the wall anyway. The best we can do at this point is take out the leader. Maybe the job will remain unfinished. So they send Nehemiah this message. Nehemiah, we would like to meet with you. Would you meet us on the plain of Ono, which is about 20 miles north of Jerusalem? It's like, it's, like, it's like, look, we're going to be neighbors. Uh, we've had our problems. We want to reconcile all that. Let's sit down and work out some sort of treaty or an agreement between our peoples. Uh, the truth was they had no intention of any kind of treaty or anything like that or doing anything. They, what they wanted to do something to Nehemiah. That was their intention. Here's what happens. End of verse 2. Nehemiah says, but they were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them and saying, I'm doing a great work. And I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Picture this. Here's Nehemiah up on some ancient scaffolding up on the wall. The messenger comes to him and he's like, this message is urgent. And he's shaking the ladder. He's like, Nehemiah, Nehemiah, you got a letter from Sanballat. He wants you to come and meet with him on the plain of Ono. And, and Nehemiah, from his place on the wall, shouts down to this messenger. He says, tell him I am doing a great work here. I cannot come down. They send the messenger back. Nehemiah, Nehemiah, we got a letter, another letter from Sanballat, and he really wants you to come and meet with him on the plain of Ono. And again, Nehemiah's response, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Five times they sent this urgent message to him. Five times his response was, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. The significance of that phrase within this context is this. Nehemiah clearly knew what God had called him to do, in his case, to rebuild the wall. And anything that contributed to rebuilding the wall was a yes. Anything that would distract him from rebuilding the wall got a no. Decision-making was very easy for Nehemiah because once he had the big picture of what God ultimately wanted on his life, all the options prioritized themselves. It was easy to decide. So the message was simple. I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. In fact, would you say that with me? If you feel like you're being manipulated, don't feel, don't, no big deal, but everybody, everybody do it. Okay. Uh, say it with me. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Thanks. You know what I find myself doing? As I think about what God wants for me, for my marriage, for my family, for my role in this church, for my relationships, over and over and over again, Alethe and I, you know, we get invitations and opportunities and things to do, and we look at each other, and we've really learned to be accountable to each other, and we look at each other and we say, we're doing a great work, and we cannot come down. I used to go into my kids' rooms every night before I would go to bed, and I'd think about what the future held for them, and I would think about um, what this day looked like, and then I would think about the potential there and what God's called us to be as parents and I would think about all the things that can distract me from focusing on what God has called me to be as a parent. 
When all those great opportunities came along, I would say, I'm doing a great work, and it cannot come down. For nearly 20 years, uh, while pastoring here, I was bivocational. I worked 15 to 20 hours outside the church for all those years until about a year ago. And from time to time, the people I worked with, and when I was at the Y, and then at the Chamber of Commerce, people would ask me to come to, I don't know, a spur-of-the-moment meeting uh, to coach this team because it's Friday and the game's on Saturday and we don't have a coach, uh, or to come be a part of this committee, or really it's just a subcommittee, so it's not a big commitment. Um, and I would look at my calendar and the vision that God had called me to pursue as it relates to my ministry in this church. I would look at the opportunity, which I could do, maybe even do well. I no doubt do it better than most people that I knew. And could, I could contribute. <laughs> could I contribute to a worthy thing? Sure. But in the context of the vision that God had given me for my ministry at Faith Community, for my role in my family, and I would say I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Lethe and I get all kinds of requests for our, our help, for our involvement in things, and um, it's been true for years. And I remember when the kids were growing up, because it'd be like, well, you know, you don't have a real job, and you homeschool your kids, so you could help with this during the day. Um, so why not? It's a big deal. The big deal is I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Listen, in every single area of your life, where you allow God to give you a clear picture of what could be and what should be, decision-making gets easier. Because now you know that in general, this is where God is taking me, and anything that contributes to that is a yes, and anything that distracts from that is a no. And for those of you who are parents, especially if you're parents of you know, young kids and you struggle with your priorities and your time commitments between work and family and friends and the church and this cause and that cause and this thing that people at church are begging me to be a part of, and let, me, let, me, let me tell you something. You want to do something powerful? You walk into your kids' rooms at night when they're asleep and you sit down on the edge of their beds and, and just say, Heavenly Father, thank you. I'm doing a great work. And I cannot come down. heard somebody say this. I think I remember who it was, but I'm not sure. So I came up with this. Sid, uh, I heard this uh, a couple years ago. Your greatest contribution, parents, your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do. It may be someone you raise. Mm. Hmm. Maybe, that may be the most significant thing you hear today. Your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do, it may be someone you raise. For some of you, you need to put on your work station at work somewhere, wherever it is that it's visible or that's at your computer in the top drawer of your desk or uh, on your phone or somewhere, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Some of you, God has positioned to do great things for his kingdom financially. And for you in the future, you see a time when you'll be able to invest more of your resources and more of your energy and more of your time in the kingdom of God. And yet at the same time, there are people bombarding you with you know, investment opportunities or business opportunities or worthwhile causes to contribute to. There are all kinds of distractions. And yet you know in your heart that God has positioned me to do something unique because of what I'm, he's blessed me with. And you've got to remember, I'm doing a great work here and I cannot come down. We've seen God do some incredibly unexpected things at faith community over these last, well, really these last 20 years, what I call the first 20 years. 
And we want that to continue. We, we believe that we're just getting started. And what we're doing, what we have to offer to our community and to your family and to your friends and to your unbelieving coworkers and family members, the people you care about, it's a worthwhile thing. It's a great work. And maybe you need to be reminded, if, if this financial thing is, is your thing that God's called you to, that you need to be reminded we don't have an umbrella organization somewhere that just underwrites everything financially. All the income that takes care of salaries and the mortgage and the lights and the heat that's working today and programming expenses and equipment and all that, look around the room. All that revenue comes from right here, from this group of believers. So maybe you need to get in the game. Maybe you need to get up on a wall with Nehemiah and get involved financially in this great work. And when you do, and you find yourself saying to all these distractions, I'm doing a great work and I can't come down. This thing that I'm investing in brings eternal rewards. This is a big picture thing for me. This offer you're making me is great. Yes, I can see the potential there, but this, it's good for some people, but it's not the thing that God's called me to do. This is my priority. Some of the single adults and teenagers in our church, you've got standards that you've set for the kinds of relationships that you want to have when you think about your future husband or your future wife. And as you're faced with the potential for relationships that might be all right, but maybe not the best, uh, relationships that probably won't take you where you see God leading you in the future, then as a church, we need to continue to encourage you that, yeah, I, I know I'm not, not really in a significant relationship right now, so if that's the case, do I even really matter? Does anybody care? And I could really use some companionship, but this, would, this could be all right for a while, but you know what? I'm doing a great work, and I can't come down. Some of you are brand new Christians, and, and you're reading your Bible, and you're asking questions, and you're growing like crazy, and you've got a picture for the first time in your life where you, you're renewing your mind, and you're thinking about the right things, and you're developing the right kind of friendships, and yet there are all these opportunities. You just need to say, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. And that decision comes more easily because as the vision gets clearer, the options get fewer, and the decisions get easier. We all know people. Maybe you've been there yourself. But we all know people who've had opportunities uh, let's just use this as an example to, say, move out of the area, okay? Maybe to move to the southern part of the state or to move out of the state altogether to pursue an opportunity. And I've seen people, I've known people, friends of mine, as they focused in on what God wanted to do in their marriages and in their families and uh, in their ministries, and it became very clear to them that they were to move, knowing that it would mean a loss, but it would also mean new friends, new schools, new church, new opportunities and all that. But as they examined the vision that God had given them for their lives, it was easy to make that decision. It, the answer was yes. As they thought about what could be and should be, it was clear to them that they were to move on. I've had other friends faced with the same opportunities as they focused in on what God wanted to do in their marriages and in their families and in this church and in their ministry. It became clear to them that they were to stay, knowing that it means staying in the same job with no immediate prospects for promotion or advancement. But if they examined the vision that God had clearly given them as they did that, it was easy to make this decision. That the answer was no, we are to stay. This is one of the ways that God guides and directs. Because it's rarely a voice in the night. Uh, be skeptical of the voice in the night. It's not an impression. It's not a strong impression. It's bigger than that. It's asking the question, Heavenly Father, what could be and what should be here? What could be and should be here in this area of my life? What could be and should be in this area of my life? Fine-tune my thinking to see my future the way you see it. 
and then help me to evaluate everything that comes along accordingly. As you think about what God um, has for you in the future, as you sit down and talk with God and say, God, give me a picture of what family could be, what it should be. Give me a picture of what my finances should be. Give me a picture of what my service in the church and in my community should be. Give me a picture of what my time commitments should be. Give me a picture of what my spiritual life should be. And as you begin to catch a glimpse of what could be and what should be in your life, decision-making gets easier and God's will becomes clearer. Then it's a matter of saying, good idea, great opportunity, worthwhile deal, sure, that's important, but I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Here's what I want you to do. Three quick points of application and then I'm done. Number one, would you be willing to at least begin praying that God would give you a vision for your life in the key areas of your life? Just ask God for a vision. Ask for clarity. Ask for that to come into focus. Say, God, help me. I want to see my finances the way you'd like for them to be. Give me a picture of what you'd like my marriage and my relationship with my kids to be. Give me a picture of what you'd like my involvement in the church to be. Just begin developing a picture of like the cover of the puzzle box so that you'll know how to put the pieces together and which pieces fit where. So begin praying that God would give you a vision for your life. And then number two, and this is the part most of us won't do, would you write it down? Would you just spend some time, and I don't mean you have to, you know, have journals and pages and subpoints and a business plan and a PowerPoint for your relational and spiritual life. Uh, it can be simple as a sentence or a bullet list or a paragraph that says, here's the bullseye on the target. Here's the bullseye on the target financially. Here's the bullseye on the target relationally. Here's the bullseye on the target spiritually. Here's a bullseye on the target for me physically in the areas of my health. Here's what I want to see happen because God has clarified this for me and start to write it down. And over time, in the years to come, it will change. God will shape it and form it. But if you don't have anything out there that you're moving toward, you, you lose a critical context for decision-making and for discerning God's personal will for your life. And the third thing is act accordingly. That is, you begin making decisions based on what could be and should be in your future. And anything that moves you towards that, that thing that God has called you to be and to do, gets a yes. And anything that moves you away or distracts you from what God has called you to do and to be is a no. And you'll begin to think and respond uh, this way. Finding God's will will become so much easier because the clearer His vision for your life, the fewer the options, the easier the decision-making process. I'm going to invite the band to come to the stage. We're going to sing a song here in just a second. You know something? To a great extent, this is why we are the church that we are today because this is how we try to operate. God gave us a vision. There are a lot of things that we don't do here. There are a lot of things that aren't real important to us here that maybe other churches do. That's fine. If that's the thing God's called them to do, they should pursue that wholeheartedly. But there are also things that we're going to do till Jesus comes or until he radically changes the picture. And at Faith Community with our elders and our leadership team, decision-making is a pretty simple process because the vision's clear. And I'm grateful for that. But I hope it isn't just a corporate thing. I hope that for each of us personally, 
in our families and in our marriages and in our personal lives, that we'd have the courage to begin to say, God, help me to see these critical areas of my life the way that you see them. So I just want to challenge you to take the time to sit down this week. I challenge you to do it today. It'd be even better. Because the longer you wait, the less likely you are to actually do this. Maybe, you know, your spouse or your significant other or other members of your family aren't in the room and you need to sit down and make sure they get to hear uh, the message and then you're going to have a plan. We're going to listen to this and then we're going to sit down and talk about this. Take the time to sit down, write a sentence for each of the major areas of your life, relationally, spiritually, financially. You begin making decisions accordingly. I think you'll be amazed at how much easier it becomes to discern God's will for your life. Let's stand together. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Let's pray together. I want to pray the prayer of the psalmist from Psalm 25. Lord, show us your ways. Teach us your paths. Guide us in your truth. Our hope is in you, our God, our Savior. You guide the humble in what is right. All your ways, you are loving and faithful. Our hope, Lord, is in you. Amen.